0: Welcome to the Cycling in Alignment podcast, an examination of cycling as a practice and dialogue about the integration of sport and right relationship to your life.
1: Greetings and salutations, listeners. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Cycling in Alignment. Today's episode is a special one. We've got Trevor Connor and Rocco Orlando here to discuss their own individual stories and special journeys into the world of overtraining. You'll want to stick around to hear Rocco and Trevor talk about their adventures in overtraining. Both of them have very poignant stories to tell. And the idea is that the listener will get a feel for what happens if we just keep training and training. As you'll discover, there are some extraneous factors that play into both of these athletes' downward spirals. I'm sure you'll enjoy this episode as there are a lot of powerful insights into what makes uh, the mind of the athlete tick and how one chooses to go over the cliff. I wanted to bring Trevor and Rocco into a show so that we could clearly demonstrate to the audience what happens if you do just keep training. If you adopt the more is always better mindset and ignore the signals of the body only sticking to the training plan relentlessly, or perhaps not even sticking to a plan, but consuming as much load as possible. This will eventually lead to some dark outcomes. And both of these guys have taken that downward spiral to the extreme. So I think it's very useful for us to hear their stories, understand the elements that were at play for them to adopt this mindset and to keep going in spite of warning signals from their bodies. This is where the power in the lesson lies. On the one hand, I think that sharing these stories can be hopefully preventative for some listeners. Some of you may hear these stories and recognize that you're on the same path or that you have the capacity to perhaps go down the same route, but others will hear this and perhaps have to learn the lesson themselves. In any case, my hope is that hearing Trevor and Rocco tell their stories will help some athletes either prevent this same sequence of events or help them come out of it more quickly and find the help that they need in the event that they do end up making the same choices. Today's episode is nuanced. Each story takes quite a while, but it's worth hearing. And at the end, both Trevor and Rocco unpack some powerful insights into how they got to where they were. So it's worth listening to hear the conclusion of their adventures and also their own takeaways from their experiences. Onward, please enjoy this episode with our special guest Trevor Connor and Rocco Orlando. Welcome listeners to another episode of cycling and alignment. Today we have we have our first three-way on cycling and alignment. Get your mind out of the gutter. Today's guests are Rocco Orlando and Trevor Connor. Many of you probably know Trevor if you're on Fast Talk Labs podcast and following that channel. You may or may not know Rocco, although you may have caught a glimpse of some of his amazing steeds on cycling tips. Check out Bikes of the Bunch, Rocco Orlando, and you'll see what I mean. Trevor, how are you
0: today? Good. Nice to be on the show. Thanks, man. Thanks for making time. Of course.
1: Rocco, how you doing, buddy? Good, good. Amped up always. Today's pod, I, in today's episode, I'd like to unpack a bit about overtraining and overreaching. We're going to have uh, Trevor, I'll ask Trevor to to detail the technical definitions of those terms so that we're using our terminology correctly. The inspiration for this episode was when I heard Trevor's show uh, with Chris Case and Steven Siler that aired a while ago, not too long ago. And they discussed this exact topic, the definition of overtraining versus overreaching. And Trevor told his own story about a season back in, I believe it was 1999, where he will say trained so hard that he went over a cliff. And I want to have him unpack his story. And that also reminded me of some conversations I've had with Rocco about his own journey in sports. And So today, what I'd like to do is have both of these athletes tell their stories with the goal that we can unpack a little bit about how they got to that point, how they did end up falling over that cliff and the ramifications of those decisions. I'm going to start with a prologue, which is my own story. And that's a warm up. It's like the organic sourdough and goat butter appetizer that we have before we get to the main course. So, but Trevor, if you wouldn't mind starting us off, what? Is the definition of overtraining, and what is the definition of overreaching? How do we tell the difference? And
0: maybe there's some other nuance to that topic you'd like to to enlighten us on. This is what set this whole thing off. I inappropriately used the term burnout to refer to overtraining and got appropriately chastised by Dr. Seiler, mm-hmm. who pointed out these are all different things and it's important to use the right terminology. So I'll quickly get burnout off the table. Burnout is mental. Mm-hmm. It's not really a physical thing. That's the end of the season. You don't want to look at your bike anymore. You're tired of intervals. You're just mentally cooked. You you don't want to keep going. So that's burnout. Uh, overtraining and overreaching, these actually have only recently, at least in scientific terms, recently been defined. So if you went back 20, 30 years, we really just kind of used overtraining to explain everything. Now it's, it's been important to differentiate them. So overreaching is that you have put yourself in a fatigue state that is going to take a certain amount of time to recover from. There's what's called functional overreach and non-functional overreach. Functional overreach is I'm tired like you just did a big hard training camp. You need about a week to recover, but at the end of that week, you're gonna come back stronger than you were before. So that's that whole concept of, of supercompensation. A uh, functional overreach can actually be a very effective form of training. Non-functional overreach is when you've gone too far, and now your body has gone into a fatigue state that's going to take longer to recover. So now we're talking weeks to months to recover, and generally because you detrain during that recovery period, you come out of a non-functional overreach either no stronger or sometimes weaker than you went into it. So, that's something you want to avoid. But it's still, if you go into non-functional overreach in the spring, you can still potentially have a summer. It's not necessarily a season ender. Mm -hmm. Overtraining is becoming, thankfully, much rarer and that is that condition that you have done some sort of damage to yourself from just pushing it way too far mm-hmm. and now we are talking at least months sometimes years uh, so i'm going to be sharing my story later it took me several years to get back to where i could train normally again um, and some people never return mm-hmm. it, it can end careers mm-hmm. so that's what I we are saying overtraining is actually thankfully very rare but it is a, a pretty severe thing. Mm-hmm. Okay.
1: Good. So the difference between functional overreaching and non-functional overreaching is superficially it's time, right? You would say a week or maybe two weeks, possibly three weeks for a functional overreach, a really hard training camp, or maybe just a hard month. Um, competing a grand tour, if you're a world tour rider might be considered functional overreaching, assuming that they're able to bounce back and race the rest of the season and have some moments where they feel okay.
0: Yeah, pretty much everybody who races a grand tour comes out of the tour overreached, functionally overreached. Generally functionally, yeah, I think sometimes. some of the guys who are doing a grand tour for the first time are probably yeah. coming out non-functional overreach and they don't care because they're in a grand tour. It's right. a pretty exciting thing. Right. Uh yeah, I mean I to get ready for our podcast, I read a recent review that said one of the issues here is how you actually define the three. Mm-hmm. It, it, is, it has been hard to come up with a proper definition. They really do use both how deep into fatigue you go more, how long it takes you to recover, which doesn't really help at the time because somebody says, hey, I'm really fatigued. Am I functional overreach or non-functional overreach? The answer is, well, go recover. See how long it takes. We don't, and then we don't we know yet. tell you. <laughs> right. But if you think about this, there is a problem studying it. And yes. this is why the science is having a hard time defining because due to ethical standards, you can't intentionally put somebody into a non-functionally overreached or an overtrained state. So if you want to do a study, you have to find people who have accidentally put themselves into that state, which is right. hard, and then try to measure them. So they've been trying to do this. They've been looking for any sort of biomarkers of to differentiate these things. And so far, mm-hmm. they haven't found anything. Okay, just thinking nefariously for a moment. You and I are both coaches.
1: We've got piles of athletes we can manipulate like puppets with strings. 2020 was our perfect year to throttle all (laughs) our athletes in the kingdom come and then get them all blood tests, right? (laughs) And then, you know, have a non-consensual, completely illegal and unethical study. But, man, we learned so much. Wouldn't Um, that be fun?
0: (laughs) Well, they do say that coaches – Good coaches develop a sense. They can tell the athlete when they... So I always heard from old school coaches, they call it riding the knife's edge. Mm -hmm. And that non-functional overreach is going over the knife's edge. Mm. Some of the coaches I have worked with are really good at identifying when you've gone over the edge.
1: Interesting. So this immediately makes me think of my discussion... podcast episode I had with Jesse Stensland, where she talks about how her paradigm, her training paradigm was completely shifted when she started working with Exos and how the coaches there dialed her program back much to a much lower volume and intensity than she'd ever had before. She had Mm -hmm. only a handful of days per week, two or three, where she really trained hard. The rest of the days were off or really easy active recovery pace, riding or training and she went to world championships and had her best result ever there after, I think, eight or 12 weeks of training with him. And it was a really interesting story. It's a paradigm that I've kind of discovered in my own adventures as an athlete. Um, so it's, what I'm pointing out is that we have this sort of more is always better mentality where, where we have some coaches and some athletes who sign up all in. And they assume that when they're always riding the knife's edge, that's going to be the result of their best performance. And I would say as a coach, I want to use the word stylistically, even though it doesn't sound right coming out of my mouth, I I generally speaking, I will dial athletes back from that knife's edge because to me, the risk isn't worth it in most instances.
0: Well, that's why I mentioned old school. It is Mm -hmm. a bit of an old school belief that to be at your best, you have to sit there right on that edge and throttle yourself and and try not to fall over, but keep yourself on that edge. Mm -hmm. I would say what the science is showing more, what you're seeing in coaches now is saying, most of the time you don't want to flirt with that edge you mm-hmm. want to stay away from it you can actually get to a very high level doing that mm-hmm. and every once in a while just kind of flirt with the edge that's that that functional overreach for a very short period of time then pull back and, and continue to stay away from the edge
1: that's that's how i trained in the latter part of my career for sure most yep. of the time i was well within the boundaries And then before a race that I wanted to focus on, I would ramp up and do a functional overreach for a week. I'd throttle myself. Yep. And probably looking at it, a lot of coaches I think wouldn't have predicted that might have worked because I went, my volume increase was massive at times. I remember before Masters Worlds, I went from an average of probably 12 hours a week to double that, actually more. It was almost 30 hours. And I knew I could rely on that because my recovery modalities were pretty dialed in, I think. And it worked out great. I was flying. Yeah that also that comes with the experience of being an athlete for however many 800 Correct. million years I've been riding my bike not everyone can pull that off and have the confidence to do it so
0: you have a real innate sense for your limits and when you're pushing them
1: in that case I did but yeah. it's a never ending quest to know that limit that's the point so well I'll just briefly tell my 98 story which based on the the definitions we just laid out is pretty clearly a case of functional overreaching i would say um or non-functional or excuse me non-functional thank you yeah and well we can we i'll lay it out and we can decide but basically i'd been a pro for two years officially and i use the term pro loosely so this was 1998 i was racing for the car to cyclist team i was actually getting paid a salary so i felt pressure to perform uh, to sort of justify that salary. That was my own mentality going into that season. And I decided I was just going to train the couple of years before I had sort of had the evolution of my career was such that I had improved, 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 improved. And then in 96, I felt like I had my first year where I didn't necessarily make that quantifiable gain. I was sort of like roughly produced about the same amount of power, the same amount of the same level of results. I wasn't taking a step forward. 97 was sort of the same, if not a little bit of a step backwards. So from that perspective i felt like ooh, i felt pressure you know now i was being paid to ride my bike and i had to make that next step forward i felt that real um impetus to keep progressing so i decided i was just going to train like a maniac all year and my staple was going to be 200k solo rides so there were multiple times on wednesday middle of the week where i would ride from boulder to horse tooth and back on my own and my goal was to average 200 or 210 watts the entire time just Grinding away in the good old zone two pace, right? In the five zone model, which was hard. Yeah. But I felt like fun. Yeah. I <laughs> like still do that,
0: right? <laughs>
1: <laughs> I don't. Um, so that was my goal. And I did that and it worked really well. In the early season, I was smashing results and getting, having some good results. I'll say wasn't smashing, but I was making progress. I felt like I was doing things that I had never done before in, in races, and then the tide turned in about May when I went to Amsterdam for a couple weeks and I got there and was experiencing a little jet lag and I trained through it thinking it was just jet lag, but it wasn't. It was the first signs that that those 200K rides that I've been doing consistently and traveling and racing, traveling around the US, I'd already been to Tour La Fleur, which was in, what? Man, I'm like really showing my age right now. What state was that in? What city was that in? Do you remember that? It was an NRC race.
0: I'm trying to think. Yeah, that's yeah, that's somewhere going back.
1: in the southeast. As one a whole example. episode
0: of all the races that we've done that okay. nobody's even heard of anymore, and then no one
1: would care. Uh, <laughs> Visalia Road Race in California, which used to be this giant, massive thing. It was a road race and criterium that was super hard and challenging, and several other events. Uh, sea Otter was one that I went to and did well there for the first time, and Well, I'd say, well, relative to my own universe. So it's not like I won the race, but at any rate, lots of travel and racing. And then in between at home, every time back to altitude and always doing that long ride on the weekends or the midweek, every time, just consistent. And that was, I think the fabric on weaving was really the idea that I, I was just relentless where every week I seemed to ignore the context of what I had done for months and I just assumed this week I have to do more to either the mentality is always, either have to do it to maintain or to make an incremental gain. And it was the constant load over months. And so when, then I went to Italy from Amsterdam in May, bouncing around in my own head here, sorry. And I felt okay in Italy, performed well at a couple races there, flew home, tried to keep going really felt the legs come out from under me when I got back to Colorado and June and July were dark months. And I remember specifically competing in the Mount Evans Hill climb in July, which is not an event that suits me at all. But I remember never feeling that bad on a bike, like just empty to the Mm -hmm. point where it was like, wow, this is really bad. I'm being passed by everyone. I think it took me almost three hours to make it to the top of Mount Evans that year. It was terrible. Like but I felt like I was actually trying. It wasn't I'm just going to cruise along and nose breathe. It was I'm putting effort into the pedals and I'm going dreadfully slow. That was a big alarm bell. And I wasn't really mature enough to handle it mentally, so I recall distinctly riding down in the van and just being in this dark headspace where my teammates were trying to kind of console me and I was just having none of it, which showed my lack of maturity at the time. So, sorry Jim Copeland. Um <laughs> so I that was the bottom. And eventually I got to the point where I kind of kept trying to train and thinking my legs were going to bounce back. And they just, every time I went really deep, like more than maybe 2,500 KJs worth of work in a training ride or a race, the bottom fell out, just had nothing. So I finally took two weeks off in the beginning of August or middle of August and went out to Killington for the last race of the year, which is a four day stage race in Vermont. And my legs actually were okay there. I made the break in the crit, but it was like a 12 man break and I got smoked in the sprint. It didn't matter. And then we did the final road race, which was this hilly beast of a race. And I had the most colossal nuclear bonk of all times. My system just wasn't capable of storing enough glycogen to make it through a race like that, no matter how much I ate. And then I ran out of food anyway. And I, it was one of those weird scenarios where the gap between the break. Really, the the group split in two, and it was like twenty-five man lead group, and then the rest of the peloton in in pieces. And the gap was like twelve minutes, and I got shelled out of the the lead group, made it by the skin of my teeth. Weakest guy in the group, probably ended up riding for half an hour by myself, like looking for a store where I could had no money, of course. So I was going to beg for you know
0: a packet of salt (laughs) or
1: something. There's no stores in Vermont anywhere on those roads. It's just cows and horses and nothing and beauty but no stores. And it's not like there's a Seven Eleven every 500 meters like there is here. And man, I, and then I lost 12 or 20 minutes by the time I got to the line, the group caught me on the line. It was like, wow, that was bad. And then I went home and ate 7,000 killers. So <laughs> it, that experience scarred me in a sense, because it really, like, I was never the same. I had some little bright moments that were basically shell moments where I was faking it in June, July and August, but I pretty much, I never had the legs that I had in the spring, the rest of that season. And that threw me a big, it changed my paradigm about the way I thought about training. I was like, okay, this is, this is what I can do if I really just keep going endlessly and don't listen to my body. And I unpacked this a bit in my last podcast, which just dropped this week with Ron Kochabar. And what he talks about is the difference between listening to the body and listening to the mind. And when we ignore the body 100% and decide we're going to listen to our minds and say, this is my athletic goal. I am going to ride 200 kilometers a week solo at you know, hard zone two pace every week, all year. That's what I air quotes have to do in order to be good enough then I I'm ignoring the body by definition. I think fundamentally the problem is we're just too shifted to one side of the paradigm. There are moments where we need to listen to the mind and say today's VO2 workout is really going to suck, but I'm going to make myself do it. I'm going to get on the trainer and do seven by three minutes on three minutes off. I'm going to finish the workout no matter what my legs say, no matter what my body says, no matter how much anything hurts just to get through this day. Cause I know it'll be good for me. And then tomorrow, if I wake up and I'm throttled, I will take a nap or foam roll or use my Normatex or whatever. And I'll look after myself for a couple of days until I bounce back from this workout on the other side. If we listen to the body too much, it can prevent us from reaching from having those breakthrough workouts, right? So there's this tension between listening to what the mind conceptually Following a training plan, plan that is written down as a template too religiously or too too dogmatically that can be our undoing. On the other side, if we listen to the body too much and we hear every ache and pain, well, if we're too internally focused, it can be there can be moments where we don't push ourselves as athletes.
0: One the, actually one of the very first articles I ever re- wrote for uh, Velo News was called um, I think it was Running from Lions. So this is this is a. I'll give you the very short version, but this is a, a talk I love to have, which is our bodies weren't designed to race. Mm-hmm. Our bodies were designed to hunt and run away from lions. Right. So when you're going really hard, like you are in a bike race, your body isn't saying, "Hey, I'm winning the race." Your body's saying, "Damn, that's a big lion chasing me right now." Sympathetic, upregulation. Right. And the last thing the body wants to tell you at that moment is, hey, I'm hurting. Mm -hmm. It it wants to make sure that you don't become that night's dinner. So it's going to do everything possible to help you be at your best. So when you are doing a lot of racing, a lot of intense training, your body is just thinking, man, we're running away from a lot of lions right now. Mm -hmm. So you're doing damage, you're hurting me, but I need to keep you alive. And your body's going to pull out every trick. To keep you as functional as possible. So one of the reasons you see people, as you are experiencing, pushing this this overtraining, but continuing to do it is when you are first going over that knife's edge, you are actually going to have workouts and races where you're going to feel amazing. You feel great. Yeah. Put out banner numbers and go, oh, I can't be suffering. I can't be overtrained because look at that workout I did the other day. Look at that one race. Yeah that's your body pulling out the trick your body has natural painkillers and they are flowing heavily mm-hmm. to hide from you all the damage that you're doing and that's why we can go so deep and, and not listen to our body because our bodies are actually fooling us at times into thinking that we're feeling a lot better than we actually are it's your body's
1: natural aspirin aspirin dispensary yep it's the way to think about it right these are catecholamines
0: yes right so they endorphins. Yep. They get flowing and they get you feeling good. And this is when I do a, an intentional functional overreach with an athlete. I always tell them. So typically we'll do like a Thursday to Sunday block. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell them, look, you're going to wake up on Monday feeling great. Yeah, You're going to want to keep going. Stop. Because Tuesday, Tuesday
1: the truck's going to come.
0: Right. I'm like Tuesday or Wednesday that you're going to wake up. And it's going to feel like you got hit by a bus. Mm-hmm. And that's because that's when your body finally says, oh, I'm no longer being chased by lions. I can clear out all these catecholamines, all the painkillers. Mm. Catacholamines. Chol? Cole? Uh, Canadian. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, if I ever mispronounce something, that's Canadian No, I just want to make
1: sure I was on the right page. <sighs> skeletal. That's the Australian yes. pronunciation of skeletal. Yeah, right.
0: uh, Which I actually really like. Yes. Um Once they clear, that's when your body can do its repair work. But that's also when you feel all the damage you've done. Mm -hmm. And that's why you will wake up feeling like you got hit by a bus. Right. Right. But if you're never recovering, if you're never giving your body that rest, Mm. you never fully feel that.
1: Let's hear from Rocco. Rocco, I'd love for you to tell your story. If you could give us a bit of context about your background as a human and then how you got started in athletics. I know you went through a schemo phase and then you jumped into bike racing. Yeah, um, I think it's good to
2: know the background because it, it helps with the conclusion. Mm-hmm. Um, so grew up in California, and uh, we'll just jump straight into about, I think I was 25 when I joined the military and just couldn't figure things out after college. And I enlisted in the military. I didn't come in as an officer, even though I, I went to a very good you know university. Um, I needed to actually grow up. And be a man. And I was just a giant child at 25 years old. And um, was in the military for 10 years, served two tours in Afghanistan. And um, my mother passed away from uh, cancer. And I left the military, and my mother died all within about the same year. Mm -hmm. So I was already kind of prepped for some sort of um, need to get myself back into some form of fighting shape, or as my mother used to say, warrior mode, right? Mm-hmm. Like I wasn't firing on all cylinders. And the usually the only way to get myself out of a funk is through rigorous activity. Um, I never was an athlete. I never competed in anything prior to the military. Um, never did racing, obviously. Um, barely did uh, sports in high school. Uh, was always... Uh, With a strength training background. My father was in the industry for the last 65 years and he was a big piece of the strength training trend in the United States in the 70s and 80s and 90s. So I came up with his upbringing of fitness from about 15 years old is when I started taking it pretty seriously. And so by 20 years old, I was like a straight up uh, bodybuilder. That was like my focus was a gym rat and I wasn't one of those idiot douchebags that was like, you know. 10 times as big as they should be with, you know, a tiny little penis. But
1: um, – You weren't competing in bodybuilding no, though. You were just – No, it was but
2: it was bodybuilding because it yeah. was literally six days a week in the gym mm-hmm. um, doing like Arnold training, you know. Yeah. And uh, pretty narcissistic too. So uh, – but that trend continued in the military, um, especially downrange in Afghanistan. You don't really have – a lot to do on what we call forward operating base. I mean, you're out there, you're surrounded, you're, you know, you're probably near a village where everyone hates you. And so when you're not doing missions, there's downtime and there's a lot of downtime. And Mm -hmm. so that just extenuated this kind of bodybuilding background. Um, where other officers and other soldiers would run and they would do a lot more endurance-oriented activities if they could. Mm -hmm. The base was small enough, they'd just be on the treadmill. But Mm. I was strictly like a weights guy. And most of the guys I trained with was. So when I got out of the military, um, I was struggling to find what the hell first I wanted to do in my life. And then second was the only way I could stay positive was through these workouts right and the strength training wasn't enough anymore after the military Mm -hmm. and so i could and i it's interesting i ran in the military and and the military ruined running for me Mm -hmm. because it's these slow really long jogs usually as a huge group and with gear yeah and it just sucks and where i want to run by myself with music and yeah so i i When I got out, you know, I struggled with finding an activity that would get me amped up. Mm -hmm. So fast forward a couple years, I'd already been out of the military. I had a breakdown living in downtown Los Angeles, surrounded by buildings. Somehow I thought that I was going to be the corporate guy Mm -hmm. and I freaked out and uh, like on a whim, I had never spent time in Colorado. Okay. I briefly come through Denver and I said on a whim, I closed shop in Los Angeles Put everything in my car and uh, rented a like ski-in, ski-out apartment for the winter in Breckenridge. Mm-hmm. And I felt like I was going to become a an alpinist. I was going to learn to climb. And in the meantime, I might as well just live on a ski resort and, and ski when I'm not climbing. And so I got into ski mountaineering. And um, this is coming from a zero-endurance background. Mm-hmm. But I liked... Longer slogs of exercise, right? I wasn't the short interval guy, right? Because yeah. you can't get the endorphins going. You need something, you know, at least 90 minutes. Yeah. And so, and skiing the resort, that got boring really quickly. I mean, those runs, how many times can you do them if you live on them? Mm-hmm. So, what got exciting was the schema had a danger aspect to it because I would go at night. I lived on the resort. I bought all the lightweight Schemo kit. Right, it's very similar to cycling as far as it's very kit-driven. Right, uh-huh. carbon fiber boots, carbon fiber skis, yeah, um, carbon fiber poles. You can dork out on all that stuff. You could just you could spend like fifty grand, uh-huh. right, and and not even put a dent into the sport. So that that attracted me was the science kind of behind that, and then I loved putting skins on and going up a mountain by myself. In an element where, yeah, it's a resort, but it's pitch black. It's four in the morning and it's minus 22. And there's like 60 mile an hour headwinds the whole time. And Mm -hmm. you're wearing this tiny little skin suit because after 30 seconds of going upright, your body's on fire. It's just like, whoa, this is. And that's at 11,000 feet going to 13,000 feet. Right. Mm -hmm. So I would go to the summit of peak eight every morning. Right. And I had to be the first one on the mountain. There were other crazy people that would go at like, you know, six in the morning when the sun's not going to be up for probably another hour and a half and they think they're badasses. I'm like, I've been here for two hours, bro. You know? <laughs> so that was pretty extreme. Um, cause if something happened, if God forbid I hurt myself, it's pitch black out there. They're not going to find me till, yeah. you know, the morning when, you know, someone from Texas is on their first powder run and they see me, you know, as an icicle right. laid out. So, but then guess what happens in winter? Winter ends yes. and summer begins. And I'm going through this right now, this transition between seasons. So then it was the same thing I'm dealing with now with dealing with winter was dealing with summer. Mm-hmm. And the snow was melting. And I mean, it's summer till May, right? But in two weeks, there's no spring. Winter till May. Yeah. Winter melt. Yeah. Winter till May, excuse yeah. me. There's, there's two weeks where it goes from an all- white alpine environment to an all green alpine environment mm-hmm. and it's there's like where what happened the spring i thought we were gonna like you know it would be a little warmer but the snow would stay and, nope so i was seriously considering i was like well my apartment's up um i think we should move to chile because it's winter there just stay on the winter train and yeah. i literally went to a um, a mountain sports store somewhere in summit county and was like interested in selling some of this expensive kit I just bought Mm -hmm. to generate some cash to go to Chile Mm because I didn't want to bring all this kit and pay. You know, I was like, I'll just get a new kit when I get there. Mm -hmm. And I saw this red, shiny, red um, Cervelo. I think it was an S3. And I was like, ooh, what's that? And I've (laughs) always been fascinated with cycling. Mm -hmm. I watched all of Lance's tours that got me into the sport. Okay, Um, But never, ever rode a road bike. It just, it never worked out. Right, and so I saw this thing, I bought it, and in the first two weeks, I did a thousand miles, thousand miles, all in Summit County. So uh, I was I was doing rides from Breck, going all the way around Frisco, going to yeah, Leadville, yeah, and then riding back up the hill, descending like an animal, mm-hmm. and coming back back. That was all in two weeks. My group of friends were all Schemo guys, so they were all endurance guys, and they're like, "You should get a coach." Mm-hmm. And this is at the two week mark. Yeah, so I get a coach. And I'm training now on a bike that I've only clipped into two weeks prior. And at the four-week mark, I was racing. Mm -hmm. I was doing cat five crits, which is really scary. But um, (laughs) I wasn't the only one. And immediately, my life changed uh, because I could get even more endorphins. Because not only is it rigorous, it's the speed. The speed, And that sensation. I could get it descending on my little Schemo skis, but... This is just like – I felt like I was – I had a plug. I put it into this device and it was giving me all of this extra juice Mm -hmm. on life. So I took cycling head on and I started racing and training. And because I had this – all this winter volume of Schemo, when I transitioned to cycling, I was actually pretty good compared to all of my peers who had just started. Actually – a lot better. You had really good aerobic conditioning it, it from all bonkers. that. It was bonkers. Yeah. Yeah. And this was the first time yeah. in my life that I had this. So, so it's, go ahead.
1: Well, just to paint the picture in case people don't, aren't familiar with Schemo. You, yeah. You put skins on your skis, which means they grip going uphill. You, you basically walk or hike kind of slash run. If you're racing up to the top of a the peak, then you take the skins off and you ski back down. Yeah. It's cross country skiing up a mountain. Up mountain. Right. So it's very, you're at super high altitude you're gaining a ton of a vertical gain. So you're, you're really, it's a very aerobically taxing system. And then you've got a lot of balance and coordination to get down on these cross country skis. It's not like Alpine skiing downhill. Right. So, so yeah. you've got, you're really in shape basically. Yeah,
2: And I had that experience of descending on much smaller skis makes you a much better yeah. skier, yeah. which directly translates into descending on a bike because yeah. of the lines you choose through, corners the apex uh, Mm -hmm. and then the motion Mm -hmm. and then the ability to process at a high speed making those decisions right so that that was great so i trained all through that summer um and then another winter came and i did schemo again for another winter but i was miserable this time all of a sudden instead of enjoying these storms Mm -hmm. and enjoying um descending at night and and, and what I had just gone through the previous season, I just wanted it to, to be spring and summer so I could start riding the bike again. Right. And so by February of that following year, I was already over winter. And my girlfriend was over me complaining, even though she lived in a different state. <laughs> and she's like, why don't you just go to Mallorca? You keep reading about it. Mm. You want to ride your bike. Mm-hmm. I was building a house at the time, and they wanted me to get out of there anyways because I was telling them what to do every single day. So – On a whim, I I brought two bikes to Mallorca and I trained there for 90 days. And that's, I don't know if you've looked up that data, but that's the other thing is Mm -hmm. I've been doing this with a professional since week two. So I have all this data to show people like what actually happens when you overtrain. Mm -hmm. Um, Because this is an extreme case. And um, when I got to Mallorca, I mean, the first day I did a 333 TSS ride Mm -hmm. and felt fine and that was my first time back on a bike after an entire winter so there was no like build up and I just had that that volume in my legs from the schemo and I was able to do these huge rides so in Mallorca I thought that a hard day I I still am addicted to this TSS number would be anything over 200 and that between 100 and 200 is more like a recovery ride and then a big ride would be something over 300 TSS. Mm-hmm. So I was doing two 300 TSS rides a week and probably three 150 to 200 TSS. So these are all big rides and the reason being the stimulation. Yeah. You get to Mallorca, it's ocean, it's volcanic rock and it's beautiful mountains. Yeah. And and Colorado's great, but the ocean is pretty freaking powerful. And when you've got mountains and oceans, it's pretty phenomenal. So this was like a, a buffet for my brain, <laughs> right? This was like endorphins, right? Those – the, the pain-killing mm-hmm. metabolites, right? The, the – mm-hmm. what, what are they? The catecholamines. Catecholamines. Yeah. That's what was getting me through each ride. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't – there were plenty of red flag markers like my knees had to be iced pretty much after every ride. But I thought, oh, well – if I ice them in the, and I'm good the next day, then it's not really a problem. Mm-hmm. And it became this need the the distance became more and more important because it meant I was out there longer getting more and more of these endorphins. And I, the, I think the issue that I have is, and I think a lot of athletes deal with this, and I think this is why a lot of guys and women get into endurance sports is once you – you, you deal with that. Most of us who do, who go to the extreme are trying to essentially block out what's going on in our head, right? All that emotional pain that mm-hmm. of losing my mother, of the poor relationships I have in my family, the, the tough relationship I have with my father. Being a veteran of two really long 15-month deployments, right? Spending almost three years in a combat zone. Like there's a lot of mm-hmm. shit there. Mm-hmm. And what cycling does is it takes physical pain, which is the more in the moment kind of pain, and it blocks out all that emotional stuff. Mm. So, and and it's doing this subconsciously. You, a lot of times you don't even realize what you're doing. Um, well said. So I had about 90 days in Mallorca of just. I think when I I was running on a weekly TSS of 130, mm-hmm. and. A daily, you mean? Probably. Daily, excuse yeah. me, daily. Yeah. Yeah. And I, yeah. I didn't break down. Mm-hmm. And I, so when I left and went back to Breckenridge to the high altitude environment, it translated very well. Mm-hmm. I was obviously at a far lower wattage because of the altitude. Right. But I was leaps and bounds beyond. And there's not a lot of cyclists up in Summit County, mm-hmm. but the ones that are there, pre- they're pretty strong. And But I was right there for a guy that now had only been in months terms, been riding a bike for about six months. Mm -hmm. Right. And then I got into the racing and um, that became everything. I had taken a year off of work. So I became a full-time athlete, master's athlete. And uh, I had a, I got a new coach and this is when things got kind of dicey is, because I didn't have the distraction of work, I had all the time in the world to worry about my body and my training and winning. And it there was nothing else to care about other than the two dogs that I had, right? So it was a very – you could say it was a very selfish lifestyle and it was also pretty reckless because after the second season of racing, um, everything in my life emotionally was just a total mess, mm. Right? and i wasn't sleeping and the biggest issue i wasn't sleeping was because of the training Mm -hmm. and i already struggled with sleep right and it's so it's something that's already um you know a a tremendous obstacle that i'm uh, constantly battling with uh, only getting four to five to six hours and then having these massive training loads Mm. so it was a recipe for disaster and that's how the the downward spiral began was with this lack of sleep, and so what season was this for context? This what is year? Um, this is 2018. Okay, this is 2018, going into 2019. So you were in Mallorca in the spring of 2018. I was in Mallorca the spring of 2017 and the spring of 2018. Okay, so I had come back, um, raced, got through the summer, and now we're going you know into November which is my birthday. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I was in Mallorca, I met with my father on my birthday or a few days before, I should say. And we had just this epic fight. And uh, so I spent my birthday solo in his town in Spain by Mm -hmm. myself because we had this huge fight. Mm -hmm. So when I came back, I was extra motivated for that Springs racing. And I made a little vow to myself. I was like, do whatever it takes. You're going to lose weight. And which I was already ridiculously lean, mm-hmm. lean, but I'm talking about, you know, starvation now. Mm. And, uh, and you're just going to start doing like crazy, crazy, crazy volume. And because I had free reign from my coach at the time, because the season was over, it was like, just do, you know, the riding you enjoy, which for me was going up to peak to peak. And so I was doing these peak to peak rides in the cold um, with just sketchy, super sketchy conditions. And then I – you know, so these are like six-hour rides, 100 miles, 10,000 feet of climbing, 12,000 feet of climbing. And I would come back and then I would starve myself. I would eat like 500 calories, maybe 1,000 at the most Mm -hmm. and uh, like would eat whatever I wanted on the bike to get me through that ride. But then when I came back, I wouldn't do like these big recovery meals or anything. And so I'm naturally a a more built – Guy, I have a thicker torso. Um, I've got big legs. And so my like fighting weight is like 170. And I got down to 148 mm-hmm. in three months. And the whole time I'm not sleeping. Because I'm not sleeping, I'm drinking at night alcohol because it settles the anxiety. So you can at least try and put your head on the pillow. Mm-hmm. Because the sleeping was so bad, Colby, that I got anxiety around 4 or 5 o'clock because I was like, Oh shit. Not, not Stop. another night. You're thinking ahead. Yeah. Not another night. Mm. And, and it was always a battle in the morning to get your kid on cause you just, you hadn't slept. Mm. But because of that fallout with my father, I was on this extremely motivated trend that if I can pedal a bike, I'm not, I'm okay. Mm. There's, there's nothing wrong. And there were all these markers um, I mean now I, I had a complete loss of appetite because I had just lost so much weight so quickly I would go into these cycling labs uh, indoor training cycling labs like December January and everyone in the labs like dude you're like you need to stop whatever it is you're doing and like, mm-hmm. what are you talking about and my bibs wouldn't fit anymore around my shoulders mm-hmm. so people and I you know in the indoors it's a sweat box so everyone takes kind of their shirt off girls are in their sports bras yep. so I you know I take my, my top off and the straps just fall off my shoulders mm-hmm. that's how much weight and that's how quickly it was mm. um, and so then it really started to go downhill to I wasn't I wasn't thinking straight really about anything in my life um, whether it be professionally financially um, my relationship with my ex girlfriend at that time, um, so I decided. I think by January I was so down in the in, in the the drain. Um, one night I, I was going to kill myself and was in a tub and uh, just texted a girl I knew in town that she knew where I lived and she knew my boys. I was like, just get my dogs in the morning. She didn't read it till like the next morning and freaked out. Mm. But I sat there in a tub and I had a knife that my um, friend from 10th Special Forces gave me for Christmas one day. And it's like a Norwegian Special Forces knife made out of this ridiculous steel. Mm -hmm. And I tried cutting my uh, forearms up, right? Like I found the vein Mm -hmm. went up and I thought I was pressing crazy, crazy hard. Mm -hmm. But clearly in my subconscious, I didn't want to go Mm -hmm. because I just had these cuts, but they didn't require stitches. Mm -hmm. It looked like someone had taken, you know, and scraped you really, really hard. Like a cat or something. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. It looked like I got mauled is Mm -hmm. what it looked like. So I made it through that night, but that was probably like super, obviously a super low point. And then I'm not thinking I'm in sympathetic overdrive and that my body won't turn off and that's why I'm paranoid and I just want to end things. No, I'm just thinking, you know, this is it. I'm in the gutter, right? Somehow thought that moving back to California and Los Angeles would somehow change everything, mm. for, you know, overnight. Mm-hmm. But the time bomb clock had already started. That was when it started was that, that attempted suicide. So that was um, end of January going to February of 2019. So I get – I close shop in Boulder literally like overnight. I sell – just not thinking at all. Sell all my belongings, which is all beautiful stuff I've accumulated. I don't have junk. It's just all nice things that could have been put into storage. Nope. I wanted to get out within 48 hours. So literally called like an estate company that deals with you know someone who dies suddenly, right? You mm-hmm. need to sell your stuff. I had them sell my stuff. Mm-hmm. Took that money and the money I had left in savings. Moved to California and got a cabin in Malibu. I didn't even know there was like this area of Malibu where there's a lake um, right next to my school that I went to college at Pepperdine uh, because the riding there is just phenomenal. There's canyons, it's next to Latigo and all those famous descents and Um, but this cabin was, it really was like a forest and this was really was like a Friday the 13th type cabin. (laughs) So I wasn't thinking Mm -hmm. and I'm already in sympathetic overdrive, right? That's why I'm not sleeping, right? Um, I, you know, that the loss in weight, my body's just, it's in shock. Mm -hmm. And, uh, the first, I didn't think things through. Got it, saw it, saw this amazing Malibu forest. I'm like, oh my God, the ocean's like, as a crow flies, like three miles that way. This is this is going to be great. Mm-hmm. First night, t- total freaking meltdown because it's pitch black. And silent. And silent. And it took me right back to Afghanistan. I felt like I was on mission. Mm-hmm. And I was so frayed from the overtraining that the noises I would hear, like, a cat going through grass or something. I would think it was a mountain lion. Yeah. And the cabin had glass, but it's so black. you People could see you if mm-hmm. I had a light on, but I couldn't see out. Mm-hmm. So obviously now I'm in a phase where I can't sleep regardless, even if I was staying at the Ritz, mm-hmm. right, with a security guard outside. Right. And 100 milligrams of Ambien. Imagine now you're like, literally feel like it's life and death. Mm-hmm. So I didn't last a week in this cabin. Mm-hmm. I end up in a rehab facility in Georgia because that was the only place I could get in where insurance would actually pay for me to... My, my whole thing was to get sleep, but yeah. I was I was addicted to alcohol. I was literally... It was alcohol every night now to try and sleep. Mm-hmm. And I needed help. I had like very little in my bank account. And my family, they, they didn't know what was going on. They just thought that... I needed to figure things out, right? They didn't understand or have any knowledge of just how bad things were. Like, They didn't understand the gravity of where no. you No, and luckily I had, I had a doctor in LA who used to be a resident of my brother who's a surgeon and he's a home, homeopathic doctor, okay? But he's still a doctor. He can still prescribe meds. Mm-hmm. I went in his office like scared shitless the day before I went to Georgia and that's how he got me to Georgia. He's like, called my brother and said, he said he's got about 72 hours and it's life and death. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's got about 48 hours before he loses his mind. Because mm. he says, you're already in psychosis. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. By this, the grace of God, I got into this facility. It wasn't for the five uh, alcohol anonymous, alcohol anonymous meetings a day that I had to go to it was they got me off all these drugs yeah. that sleeping drugs that I was trying that weren't working that were in the system they, they rolled me off all that the problem is with these facilities is they just put you on <laughs> other drugs but what they did help with is they they at least got me on something that was not toxic that could get me to sleep Yeah, and that kind of helped but when I came back you just you can't imagine how, like how broken i was it was it, it's it's hard for me to talk about because it was it was just so i just figured i'm 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 good for dead but the sleep helped me kind of crawl back out of the hole but then the ultimate physical crash the emotional crash was done mm-hmm. I'm getting sleep, I'm, I'm kind of back on a, a ramp, but I'm not cycling, so I'm not getting those neurotransmitters that I need, the serotonin boosts, yep. you know, and uh, so I get out of there, and at least I'm on sleep, but I'm not riding, and I know I need riding, and that meant, hey, this little LA experiment, it's over, you gotta go back to Boulder, Okay. You need to ride your bike every day, not doing what you did before, but you need to be outside and you need to be with like-minded people who can you ride with and socialize with and Mm -hmm. it's not going to work out with the ex-girlfriend. And that was a big reality check. Mm -hmm. But the minute I made that decision and when I got to Boulder, things changed on the mental front, on the physical front. Now, after this crash of emotions and this drain and... I mean, I didn't even get into like what the studies showed. I can I can talk about that, but Mm -hmm. the the brain mapping and the adrenal fatigue and like just imagine a body on empty, total empty. Yeah. Yeah. And um, when I came back, I started riding. I got about a month in. I could not believe in the peak I had was when I got to L.A. That was my absolute peak fitness before this crash Mm -hmm. where like i was i had phil gaiman times in malibu Mm -hmm. right and i am not a pro athlete but i was 148 and you know a 300 ftp plus i go to c level so it's at like what 330 340 and 148 pounds like that's that's fast Mm -hmm. That that's going to be pretty decent for a civilian if Mm -hmm. you will an amateur athlete um so when i got back to boulder and i started going on these rafa rides I was getting dropped on a fucking Rafa ride mm-hmm. and it was just, it was awful. It was just, but I'm like, that's my penance. That's mm-hmm. my fucking penance is, mm-hmm. that's what happens. And you're lucky that you're just getting dropped. You're lucky you can ride or bike, bike right now. Yep. The fact that you're vertical is a miracle. Mm-hmm. And I knew that. I'm getting goosebumps just talking about it. Mm-hmm. I rode for a month. I just started to gain some fitness and I had it horrific crash coming yep. down sunshine where I had a, um, let's just say a bike failure. Okay. It's a steer um, tube yeah. snapped, right? Now. I can't even talk about what it was anymore, but mm. um, just a failure on the bike. And I went straight into the ground instead of losing speed in a slide. Mm-hmm. I was over Sunshine where it's, it's that really awful washboard Yeah, and the bike snapped in half essentially. There's a dirt descent just for context. This dirt yeah. descent probably – I had just started so it was probably at 25 miles an hour mm. if I – because that was the only speed you could go on those bumps and that was miserable. Mm-hmm. Had I been going what I normally go which is around 50, 55, I'd be dead. There's no doubt about it. But the force of the impact was so great I landed on my left shoulder and the shockwave went across the top of the collarbone and blew out my right shoulder and just blew it out into pieces Mm -hmm. and shattered the glenoid, which is the Mm. socket that the bone actually sits in. Mm -hmm. And uh, I wanted to get back on the bike. (laughs) And then I realized I was like, it was so dislocated, it was bulging out of my deltoid. Mm -hmm. It wasn't compound or anything, but it was nice and pretty. Mm -hmm. And uh, by the grace of God, I got to an emergency room. It was a Sunday up there. So I don't know if anyone, you know, who's ever listening. Gold Hill is pretty up there it's in remote and if it's not the summer you're not going to find a car up there for Mm -hmm. hours Mm -hmm. and luckily it was summer and and a a gentleman was gracious enough to take me down um, put my bike in his back truck and but that then proceeded to having surgery and having just come back from this sympathetic crash and adrenals are down Mm-hmm. your fatigue is high now there's the shock of surgery the accident I was riding for two weeks after the accident until I had the surgery mm-hmm. I, I, I actually asked the doctor this is how sick I said can, he goes you're going to be out about six weeks and I know you're going to try and get on a bike in two if you can make it to three mm-hmm. that'll be fine I'm like three weeks mm-hmm. so I asked him I go "Can this is this is October I go, can we like wait till the the first of the year so I can get some more riding in (laughs) until like the the snow snow is packed and then I can have the surgery? He's like, no, if you were to fall on this again, I wouldn't be able to rebuild it. Right. Right. And that scared me. Mm -hmm. I have the surgery. I wait a month. I get on the bike and it's like I had never ridden a bike Mm. and I stayed fit. I did Stairmaster. I did the treadmill. I did everything this doctor would allow me to do, which was pretty much everything. He was very gracious and, and he knew I needed the exercise. And then I hired you. Mm-hmm. And I, it, it was it was a blessing in disguise because now I see as I gain this fitness back and now we're, it's real gains. Because I had that schemo buildup, it wasn't, it wasn't sustainable. You know, you don't, you can't just go from Schemo and then all of a sudden you have this 300 watt FTP and think that you can do five hour rides four days a week. Like you're, like you're just not, that's just not possible. And it was humbling. And I want people who are listening to this to know like what, what's going to happen if you keep doing it. And, um, I forgot to mention that part of that rehab was what really helped me. And the reason I, she helped me with the sleep and she helped me see what I had just done to my body is she was an addictionologist mm-hmm. and an endocrinologist. Mm-hmm. And she's like, I deal with... She, this is Atlanta, Georgia. Right. She's like, I deal with a half dozen cyclists a week. You all come into my office mm. with the same freaking story. Mm. Trauma. Emotional background, lots of stories, endurance sports. Mm-hmm. They go hand in hand, mm-hmm. right? Because you're out there seeking to, to block this pain with something else. And she said... Um, what are you running from? Exactly. And that's actually what she asked me. Mm-hmm. You know, she wanted to know what the, the the source of the fuel was to drive me mm. to do something this like this to myself. So she helped me realize what you're helping me realize is like that, that stuff's not attainable, you know, or sustainable, I should say. And uh, so now the gains we're making are actually real gains where if I had another accident, I'm probably not going to lose as much as I did. You yeah. know, having been flying so close to the sun for so long and then just
1: getting totally burned. Yeah. Yeah. So. Thank you, Rocco, for sharing all that. I know that's some of that stuff is really hard for you to talk about. And I really appreciate you opening up to everyone and to the audience. That's valuable, not only for you. I think it's important for you to, to get it out and talk about it. And it takes, takes bravery to do that. So I appreciate that, but also it'll, I think other people hearing this, it'll really help them with their process, wherever they are in their struggle.
2: So, yeah. And I, I want people who are listening because cyclists are, they're obviously we're a special group and we're a special breed, but we're, I think we'd like to consider ourselves educated and, and up to speed on not just current events, but their body, fitness, nutrition. But endurance sports, it for some reason we would block a lot of the the common sense out. That somehow common sense is weakness. That's what I associate it with. Mm-hmm. Whenever I have doubt, I think doubt is weakness. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's, hey. Somewhere in my head, it's telling me, you know, we, we just went through this, you know, maybe you don't need to go to peak to peak today for six hours
1: that's because the, it's, you know, listening to the mind versus listening to the body, right? Yep. Some days your body's telling you like, I'm smashed. My legs are, are trashed. I've done all this load. I'm not recovered yet, but the mind says that's weakness. That's your body being weak today. Our job is to go ride up to peak to peak highway or go do a hundred, hundred K hard or a hundred miles hard or whatever right? Absolutely. Yeah. And
2: it, you know, especially from the military background, it's yeah. you sleeping, you're dead, Orlando, right? Pain is just weakness leaving the body, mm. you know? So that's what I would tell myself. That's how, what I was ch- trained to think, mm-hmm. right? Cause mm. it's, it's do or die. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's
1: a really reckless mentality. Mm. Interesting. So, obviously this is a story as much about cycling and overtraining and how that played a role in some other, many other factors you had happening that precipitated this, this system collapse for you. Right. Yes. And as you mentioned, now we're working on making sustainable gains. We're working on building you from the ground up with a solid foundation of aerobic fitness and life fitness. I also think that you're dead on when you say that endurance athletes have a tendency to want to bury their problems with their exercise, or as I refer to it, this is a term I stole from Dr. Scott's story. One of my other podcast guests, exorcising your demons as opposed to exercising, right? Meaning we're trying so hard to either pile more physical pain on, as you mentioned, to distract us from the emotional pain, or we're literally running from we're activating the sympathetic mode to physically express the turmoil the the paradigm of stress and response the fear or the anger or the pain that we're suffering mentally we're physically expressing that and that is relieving in the moment because it helps us embody that sensation but i believe and i'm not a therapist so at risk of speaking out of my area of expertise. But philosophically, I believe that ultimately the only way to heal pain is to look directly at it, to confront it, to understand it, to view it, to make peace with it, and then to release it. That's my, that's my perspective. Maybe everyone's not capable of that. Maybe there are other techniques that could work for other people. I'm not saying that's the end all, but that's my own experience. If I, when I become conscious of something that's painful in my life or attention, I try to sit with it. I try to, to be the rock, just weather the storm.
0: I would say one of the important things that you really hear in your story, uh, which when we talked with Dr. Seiler about overtraining, he brought this up, which is it's actually really hard to overtrain just with training. Mm -hmm. that usually there are other factors, and and you brought up these other factors. You were having problems, sleeping, the emotional sides. Normally, that is part of the story when somebody experiences overtraining. True overtraining. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and
1: clearly, I mean, the sleeping is the first big flag, right? I mean, Trevor, you can speak to this too. The science clearly points towards – there are lots of recovery modalities. There are lots of ways our body can rejuvenate or a lot of ways we can – adopt more yin practice or energy in our lives but sleep is number 1 by far and away and if you're not sleeping that's the go to the first alarm bell.
0: Yep. Agreed. You take every other recovery modality, put them all together, they still don't compare to a good night of sleep. Yep.
1: Yeah. yeah. And in the final week or 10 days when someone's tapering before their peak race of the year to that end I usually ask them, "This is the week where you put off aside as many things as you can. You're not taking your vet your dog to the groomer." You're not dealing with that old project. You're not going to stain your deck. You're not going to do these things. You're going to train less and you're going to sleep more. Okay. That's the way that's one of the simplest pathways to help increase the likelihood of success during that peak event.
0: So the one thing to be careful of what you brought up is sleep can become a stressor itself. Mm-hmm. And, and you were getting to that five o'clock in the evening. I had the same thing when I was suffering from insomnia, which was part of my overtraining as well, was street, sleep became something that you, you really stress about. It was anxiety producing. Right. And instilling. when that happens, you don't sleep. Mm-hmm. Uh, and actually, one of the things that I learned uh, to overcome the, the insomnia was just not to worry so much about sleep. Well, sleep is on a
1: very fundamental level. Sleep is about release. Mm-hmm. It's about letting go. So, the more you add sleep to a to-do list, or the more you try to embrace sleep or grasp it or make it
0: happen, the further it can be from happening.
1: You agree with that? that? Yes, that's my
0: experience. Yep. No, you you need that. You need to find that ability to just kind of relax, let the mind shut down. Yeah, and then you're able to sleep. And. You know I had asked physicians m-
2: many times during kind of this meltdown and even before just I'm like how am I able to ride my bike for six hours if I can't sleep for three and I did that for years and the answer I always got was well you did ten years in the military in a high-speed unit where you were trained not to sleep <laughs> That you were trained that two hours every eight hours is plenty. Mm-hmm. So, and it's, that's just so dead wrong. And now the military is actually going about these training methods differently because of just how awful and archaic of an approach that is to, you know, to, to being an effective soldier mm-hmm. or sailor or Marine. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's, if people are like wondering, well, how the hell did he do it? If he's only sleeping like three to six hours a night is like that. That's why. That's why. Why? But it obviously, not sustainable. Not sustainable, right? I just was able to probably go farther than your average Joe, mm-hmm. just because I had that background.
0: Mm-hmm. Trevor, do you want to tell us your story? Uh, well, certainly doesn't compare to that, but yeah, happy <laughs> to. Uh, so, mine was late nineties. I love it. So, which which year was that that you were at Killington? Was that ninety six or ninety seven?
1: It was ninety eight, actually.
0: Ninety eight. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, I, I may have raced them. it
1: the other years, but the year I was referring to was 98 when I 98. had the colossal okay, nuclear bonk.
0: It actually is the same year. So the Killington 98, when you were up there uh, duking it out in the the breakaway in the crit, I was somewhere way behind you breaking my collarbone. Oh, That's oh where no. I had my collarbone break. Oh, bummer. Uh, crashed in the crit, guy rode over top of me. Oh. So, uh, which... It was the following year, so 99, that, that I, ha- I was living in Boston, mm-hmm. had uh, my bout with, uh, with overtraining. And it started the previous year, apart from that story at Killington, I was, I, I was having a great year. I was on the podium in almost every race that I was in, so starting to go, okay, I can do something with this cycling. I'm excited about this and did what a lot of athletes did do and say, okay, next year is going to be my year. So contextually, how many years were you in when you had this good year? Where um, quite a racing, bit? not many. Uh, r- racing officially, I should say. Mm-hmm. I had lived for several years before that in Ithaca, New York. Ithaca, New York has a really strong race scene, but you've probably heard us joke about the fact that we don't even put handlebar tape on our bikes. The other thing is we don't th- – there's a lot of racing there, but a lot of it isn't official. Okay. So I had raced a ton, but my first USCF race, so it was USCF back then, Right. uh, my first USCF race was either 96 or 97. Okay. Uh, So I hadn't been officially racing for a bit. And so similar to, to you, I got into racing with already a huge amount of fitness in my legs. Having done a whole ton of unofficial racing, so I was doing these cat five races and just riding away from the field Mm -hmm. Um, and upgrading really rapidly. So just loving it, loving racing, got to 99 and just said, this is, this is my year and didn't have a coach, had no clue how to train and took the mentality of more is better Mm -hmm. and just started training a ton. Didn't know anything about nutrition, so I was eating horribly Uh, I started having insomnia issues and it was the same sort of thing, just continuing to push myself even though I was dramatically fatigued. I was having those experiences of going out and doing intervals and they just felt wrong. Uh, I was having a hard time executing them and of course my answer was, well, that's just weakness and I've got to learn how to push through this. Uh, The first time I noticed something was wrong was there was a I think it was a Wednesday it was Tuesday or Wednesday night there was a race that started out near Newton and I'm trying to remember the name of it but it was it was a evening just race that I did every week for training. A criteria or a, no, like a it was group ride kind of thing. Group ride insanity. We blew through red lights, ran cars off the road, did all these things that we shouldn't have done. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was probably not a good thing to attend, but it was about the, the the race itself. The racing portion lasted a little over an hour. Okay, and same thing. Feeling awful, just waiting to finally feel good on the bike again was getting angry. And I, I just remember in the race saying, okay, I'm going to prove that I'm back. I'm going to prove that I can be strong. Uh, there was this short climb coming up. That's about a minute. Uh, now, so we'll, you, you wanted me to, to mention this and I'll talk more about this in a minute, mm-hmm. but this overtraining changed me as a rider before that I was actually, a classic flatlander with a good sprint. I loved the one-minute climb. They, I was that, that sort of big, short power type rider. So okay. this 10% grade one-minute climb was a dream for me. And we were coming up on one, and I was just going to attack the hell out of this field and, and get away. You were licking your chops. I was looking my chops. Then I looked around and realized we were about 40 minutes past that climb. <laughs> And I spent the rest of the race trying to remember even a moment of that 40 minutes.
1: You were just zoned out in the Peloton.
0: I, it's, so I've, I've never been somebody who's ever blacked out from, from drinking, Mm. but that was a, a true blackout. Wow. I had 40 minutes of my life that I will, I, I have never been able to remember. And it was kind of a scary experience. Like, I've had times where I've zoned out in races and kind of gone, eh, I wasn't paying attention too much. But you you were aware of what was going on. This was truly a, I just, there. there's 40 minutes of my life I can't account for here. Wow. Uh, then it started affecting me off the bike. It was a couple of days later I got into my car uh, to drive somewhere. And I couldn't because my foot was shaking so badly I couldn't control the car. Hmm. So it was these things that I went, okay, something's wrong.
1: So Trevor, for context, how many months do you think you'd kind of been, we'll say training really hard to the point where you started (sighs) to see these things, this Wednesday night ride blackout
0: happen? You know, the previous year, even when I was riding, racing well, I was probably doing too much. I just hadn't been, you know, I I, I didn't start training too much until it was well into the season. Mm Mm-hmm. And I I believed in that, take a break in the fall. So I took a break in the fall and probably avoided it then, but got back to hard training in the winter. And everything I'm telling you about, all these symptoms popped up late summer. So this was probably August. So it was basically a probably February to August of just training way too hard, always doing intensity. Why would you ever do a recovery ride? So about six months of
1: just going, 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 always trying to myself. push more, more is yeah. better.
0: Okay. More is better. And
1: uh, sorry, just to interrupt, what, are we talking lots of long hilly rides? Are we talking intervals, all the above group rides? I, mean, I
0: was your classic Flatlander intensity. I was on my way to being a good crit rider. So I don't remember doing a lot of long rides. Okay. And one of the issues is this is the nineties. I didn't have any certain thing that I could download. So you don't really know. So Chris was asking me, this is like, how many hours are you doing? Can you show me your data? I'm like, I don't have any data. I wrote on a sheet of paper, which I can't find, Mm -hmm. you know, at the end of every ride, just here was the length of my ride. Here was the average speed. Uh, and later on my average heart rate, once I finally got a heart rate monitor. Okay. But like, that was all the data I ever had for any ride. So maybe a lot of three
1: hour rides with hard
0: intervals and group more kind of stuff. hour and a half, two hour rides. Okay. I think on the weekend I would get a longer ride, but, um, you know, even that there was the Wheelworks ride, which was a group ride. I was racing every weekend. Okay. So there was no real, just go out and do an easy long ride. No real recovery rides. It was okay. just go out, go hard. So, so it wasn't big volume. I'm right. probably actually doing bigger volume now
1: that was that was kind of what I was getting at I yeah. wanted to paint the picture a little bit so it
0: was combination of training really wrong too much intensity not eating right not sleeping right not recovering right so it was, again it's it's also what you're doing off the bike
1: factors what, what was your diet like then were you like a, awful I don't eat um <laughs> only white chicken breast no fat pizza I
0: thing, or... did not eat nearly enough protein mm-hmm Uh, so I had basically heard about the whole unique carbohydrates thing. So, and I was eating crappy carbohydrates. So like not only would I buy cliff bars and things like that, but uh, I figured, well, that's the food you should eat. So I should just eat those all the time. Mm. Dinner was pasta every single night. Toast or waffles for breakfast? Uh, pretty much. Okay. Uh, what did I have for breakfast? Didn't have eggs. I think it was cereal or, or waffles. Yeah. Uh, and for some reason, I was really into cottage cheese. Hmm. And I was lactose intolerant. So <laughs> so that went well. That didn't go well at all. <laughs> <laughs> that really didn't go well at all. Uh, the first sign of it was actually Fitchburg that year, mm-hmm. which is a five day state race in Massachusetts in July. Right. It used
1: to be right back when we had those types of races.
0: And, yeah, I remember just being fatigued leading up to the race. And then I'd had a great race at Fitchburg the previous year. Mm -hmm. Uh, This year, I I just kept getting dropped every day. And it was just an awful race. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it was August that it, it just the wheels fell off. And I went to see the doctor. And this was so... Part, I'm sure a lot of athletes can speak to this as well. Is many doctors don't get athlete issues. They particularly don't get overtraining. So I explained this to this doctor. It was the first time I'd ever met her. And the whole meeting with her was 10, 15 minutes. And she just latched on to not getting sleep, um, talking about the, you know, I'm frustrated, I'm upset. Mm-hmm. And it's frustrating and upset because I, I was a cyclist. I wanted to make this my career, and I couldn't ride my bike. But her response was, you're suffering from anxiety and depression. Uh, not that those are symptoms of something that's going on, but that's the cause. Immediately mm-hmm. put me on Zoloft. Wow. Uh, and just being very trusting, and went, sure, okay. Took it. And two nights later, had for the first time ever in my life a panic attack, hmm. like a severe. I actually had my housemate drive me to the hospital. I thought I was dying. Um, and the doctor at the hospital, his solution was, "Oh, the doctor, the, your doctor put you on the right medication. You need to up your dose. Right, more is better. <laughs> more is better." And I then went through like uh, two weeks in a row of every night having one of these panic attacks. Oh, that sounds miserable. It was not pleasant. So I was not sleeping. Uh, I was particularly, as as you were experiencing, fearful of going to sleep because not only was I not going to sleep, I knew I was having all my panic attacks at night in bed. Right. So I knew I was going to have another panic attack and it was just going to be a miserable night Mm. Uh, and just kept that obviously had me feeling worse and worse because I wasn't recovering.
1: Do you want to take a picture of us? Oh,
0: yeah. Sorry, yeah, Trevor. Yeah, yeah. Uh, obviously, was completely off the bike by this point. I wasn't even thinking about being a cyclist. Mm-hmm. That fall, so right around Halloween, um, I ended up going out to the Mayo Clinic. And I was such a mess. You know, it was interesting. It was interesting the, the two ways it went. Um, some doctors thought I had a... Uh, some sort of neurological disease that so they're testing me for MS for a variety of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could tell the doctor that was my, my primary at the Mayo Clinic was just, he's a hypochondriac. He's making all this up mm-hmm. and just did not take me seriously at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I particularly remember having a meeting with a heart specialist uh and he started asking me questions and he, he said we need to do some exercise testing on you and for some reason i mentioned well i biked over here and he went oh well how far was that i went about a mile and he goes well then you're fine <laughs> i'm like but no i only biked a mile and he's like well that's a lot and i'm like not for me and he's like so then he started getting my case about that and then he said well we need to see what's going on with your, your heart rate when you're exercising and i went oh well my exercise heart rate's about X. I knew what my threshold heart rate. Had. I told him that. And he just looks at me and he goes, how do you know that? I went, I, well, I wear a heart rate strap. It's like, what's a heart rate strap? Wow. So I explained to him, a pul- it's 99.
1: 99 heart rate still, straps were yeah.
0: really new technology. But yeah, I agree. For a heart specialist. So he's. I'm explaining it to him. I had a heart rate moderate in like, 89. Yeah, And he's like, why are you wearing that? <laughs> and I go... Well, all cyclists do. And he just kind of sits down in his chair and goes, Oh. And then starts to give me the you're a hypochondriac lecture. Wow. You need to stop wearing a heart rate monitor mm. and and stop obsessing these things. I'm like, honestly, athletes wear heart rate monitors. And he just says to me, No, they don't. Wow. So I got I was at the Mayo Clinic for a couple of weeks. And basically got the you're a hypochondriac go away speech. Yeah. Uh, It wasn't actually until I was at UVic studying, so University of Victoria, studying um, exercise physiology many years later that I read a review on overtraining and went, oh, my God. That was me. Yep. Up until then, I had always told people I had had a, a couple years of just being really sick. I never figured out what was going on, but it seems to be behind me. And then finally read that review and overtraining and went, well, that, well, duh. <laughs> I should have put those pieces together. But it wasn't until, so that was end of 99. It wasn't until 2002 that I was able to ride... Um, really ride a bike again and it really wasn't until 2004 I did a little racing in 2003 but it wasn't until 2004 that I raced the full season mm. um, and one one of the things that happened to me was even years later so even talking 2002 2003 2004 um, when I got on a bike I could go out and ride an hour easy and then get off the bike and a couple hours later it would start with uncontrollable sweating then I would feel feverish I would get shaky my digestive system would fall apart then I'd get a really bad headache and I'd be done for the rest of the day wow even just an hour easy ride so and I couldn't get over that so it wasn't really until 2004 that I said, I want to be a cyclist again, and just decided, I, so sorry, I should say, so. like I said, I raced a little in 2002, 2003, but I mean, I was getting popped. Mm-hmm. I, I was a Cat 5 Cycles again, because I hadn't had a license in several years, and I wasn't finishing Cat 5 races. Uh, so 2004, oh. I just said, I don't care. Um, I actually moved down to Florida for the winter, and just said, I'm just going to ride every day and put up with it. So I rode in the afternoon so only my evenings would be toasted. Mm-hmm. And for two months, every single ride, I, I would go through that experience. Uh, and then it finally started to get better. Mm-hmm. And that was my first real season back. So it basically took four years. Wow. Uh, And even then for another year or two, I was always hesitant to take more than a day off the bike because if I took two, three days off the bike, I would have a week of those symptoms again.
1: That cycle would start again. Yeah. Interesting. So it was almost like your nervous system was rebelling against that initial, the change in momentum.
0: Yep. Yeah. But it changed me as a cyclist. Yeah. Um, like I said before, that I was a classic flatlander. I had a good one-two minute power. I had a good sprint. I was well on my way to becoming a crit rider. Loved that type of racing. Uh, when I came, another thing before this all happened was I was somebody who could go out the door and be at full intensity within a minute. Didn't need a warm up. Just. Gonna go. You didn't think you hard. needed to warm up. Didn't think I needed to warm. I oh, I needed to warm up. Right. But I could go out the door and go you really get hard. Get away with it. I couldn't do that after. Mm-hmm. I could not go hard until I had uh, like thirty minutes of riding easy in the lakes. Yeah. Uh, and I became much more of a breakaway endurance style rider. I lost all that top end. Like we make fun of how bad my sprint is now, which is worthy of being made fun of. That's too bad you didn't have a power meter
1: in the mid late nineties to see the the changes in your mean yeah. maximal power spike and be interesting to see that yeah. data.
0: I rarely break 1100 now. My guess is back then I was probably one of those guys doing 15 1600. Yeah. So, so you're really a totally different athlete. I am a completely different athlete from one. And, and that's, you know, I, I obviously, I leaned into what I discovered were my strengths after that. Mm-hmm. So I probably progressed that, but I, I am no nothing close to that athlete and never refound that's a fair point that top end power that's a fair point when you came back you probably you
1: were lacking that explosive power and then you that self reinforced over time yep so maybe that had you been bullheaded about being a sprinter again and really worked on it for a few more years, you may have returned to at least some of where you were hypothetically
0: possibly now the only thing that that the only counter argument is I do a ton of sprint work, yeah and have never bro gotten much over eleven hundred watts yeah. And at a certain point you would go, if I had that good natural sprint with the amount of sprint work I've I've done. Hmm. You you should be able to see that. Hmm. Interesting. Okay.
1: This thank you, Trevor, for sharing that story too as well. I think that's great context. It really reinforces a model I have in my head about cycling as a sport. I think cycling perhaps more than other sports to a degree is what I would describe as a sport of momentum, meaning mm-hmm. it's like getting a train going on a track. You you kind of have to push it hard to get it going. And once it's going, it tends to want to go on its own. But if it keeps going too long as an analogy, problems happen. It will fall off the tracks, I guess. I don't know if that's a perfect analogy, but the point being is that on, in some senses, we need that momentum to go well on the bike. You need to have those multi-day blocks of training where you – condition the body to handle the load. And you go through that process of feeling really good. And then, as you said, Trevor, early in our episode, you have athletes who train for three or four days, you give them a solid block. And then on Monday, they might feel great, but you make them cut it off. You have, they have to have athletes discipline at that point to know that they can't just keep going forever. They can't let the train keep going down the tracks. They cut it off and they let the train come to a stop. It's a similar concept on a more, but on a smaller scale is that If you ride really easy or don't ride for three days and then try to race Saturday morning, a lot of times you'll be just blocked. You won't be able to express your fitness, the fitness you have. If you add a tune-up ride on Friday night that involves a little bit of activation, a few minutes in each zone, perhaps some high cadence work, some neuromuscular work, touch VO2, you know, open everything up. The next morning, you're far more likely to be able to actually race and have it be sustainable, hold intensity at durations for long enough to be competitive. So in that sense, you need a little bit of getting the train going on Friday to have an effective race the next day. So cycling is very momentum oriented. But Mm -hmm. the downside of that momentum is that if you just go, 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 go for months on end, I think there's sort of a magic window about six months for most riders. I call that magic. It's not the right adjective. But six months of really concerted training, building where your ramp rate is positive. You are adding load in some form. Or the analogy I use is it's like you go out for a swim and every time you train hard, you're dunking yourself. And when you allow yourself to come up for air, you basically just come up and and then dunk immediately again. And if you kind of operate under that model, almost regardless of what your starting point is and what your finish point is, if you operate under that dunking model or that week over week positive TSS for the most part, long-term gain about six months is where most athletes will start to really have some sort of cliff or plateau or injury or consequence. And so that's my experience. I don't know. Would you agree with that from a coaching perspective, Trevor? I think that's a,
0: yeah, I think I would. Um,
1: that's a rough guideline. Obviously it doesn't apply to everyone. I'm sure there are people out there who can go for eight months straight. And there's some who, depending on your, your cycling age, not meaning yeah. your chronological age, but how many years you've been in the sport, that window can be probably lengthened, right? Old man's strength, old woman's strength takes plays a role in our sport to a degree. Although now like at the Grand Tours this year, that's finally changing. But
0: Yeah, no, everybody has their their length of time before you're just gonna start melting down. Melting down. Good good word for it. Mm. And I think it's very important as an athlete, particularly an endurance athlete, to recognize those signs. I mean, I can't think of a – I raced for years and years and years after that. Um, The one thing I had going for me was I now knew what severe overtraining felt like. You knew where the edge was. I knew, yeah, uh, very well, and what it looked like going way over the edge. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I had that ability every season to know when to say, I'm starting to go down that road, time to take a break. Mm -hmm. And it was actually remarkable for me how consistent – It was like, I I could predict when it was going to hit and it was always, I always lasted about the same length of time. And it was always right about a week or two after nationals. So Canadian nationals, Mm -hmm. most nationals were end of June. And I just knew early July I was going to be done.
1: You needed a break or you were done.
0: Yep. You crafted
1: that intuition. So going to that line helped you craft that, that knowledge, that, um, box of timeline i guess
0: yep no you just you built around it and that's i've never had a great race of cascades because i've always been mm. in that box for cascades i've never gone to cascades feeling good
1: yeah that's a five-day stage race that used to happen in middle ben, of july in, in middle of july i've yep. also gone to that race and been completely fried
0: yep yeah. I, I have never gone to that race feeling good mm. so and it's just but if you recognize it and you catch it and you take that break you, you can bounce back so mm-hmm. usually my best point in the season was september and october yeah you know i'd have that first bump may june start to push the okay, go okay i'm pushing the knife's edge going maybe a little over in july take my break mm. rebuild in august and then then have that great later part of the season
1: yeah i so one anecdote i'll supply and then we'll ask for a wrap-up from you guys thank you for your time Is I found that if riders train pretty consistently again with that dunking model from around January 1st, clear out the holidays, they're starting to add load. They're not just holding even, and they're building CTL training load over time around. What I found is assuming there are no big interruptions in the spring, like no collarbones, no big 10 day flus, no something else happens, right? Hit by car, whatever. Assuming that things are relatively linear in their progression, right around the time of the summer solstice, I found that most riders are starting to get a little crispy. That's the third week in June. And for me, the logic is, okay, you've already been training for six months pretty consistently where you're adding that load. That's the window. But also for most riders who in a traditional road season, you're racing till Colorado tends to out around August, but normally you would race till September. July, June is the month where you can't quite see the light at the end of the tunnel, but you've already been training a really long time. So psychologically speaking, you're really deep into it, but you've got weeks. You can't see Killington yet or September races yet. You're like, it's too far away for me to think about that. It's starting to get hot. That's right about when the weather shifts in most parts of the U S unless you're talking Texas, Florida, SoCal. And so the, the change happens that adds load to the rider, metabolic load recovery load. Sometimes you're not sleeping as well. If you don't have AC in the summer, so I find that I take riders bikes away for five, seven, sometimes 10 days in June, which may seem excessive to some people, but this is common practice for me. And I find that for most of my athletes, again, making the assumption that their load's been pretty linear build from about Jan one, they need that break. And then that saves the second half of their season. Yeah. For a week or two in July, they're like trying to find their legs. Maybe not always sometimes they come out of that eight days off breathing fire like you had your early example of your uh woman athlete you worked with you took away you said early you took away her you told her to take a break for 10 or 12 days this may have been before recording and she had the best race of her life five days later and then promptly
0: told you that she was cured and then went into deep overtraining after that (laughs) this this, this is a woman and there's another kind of sad story about that she was a a very capable marathon runner uh, with the potential for a a good professional career. Uh, But she was early, and she got hold of the training plan of a woman who had been to the Olympics, I think medaled at the Olympics. So it was a plan that she might have been ready for in a couple years, but was way too much for her where she was at. And she came to me when she said uh, it was starting to, to go over the knife's edge you know, she couldn't do intervals. She kept having to cut workouts short. And she's like, I'm, I'm a few weeks away from my target event. What do I do? And recognizing you know, when she described me I'm like that, that's you're, you're overreached, mm-hmm. possibly pushing over training. Um, so recognizing that right away, I said, you're not going to like what I'm about to tell you, but here's what you need to do. You need to take a week completely off. Mm -hmm. She's like, so no intervals, but long runs. I'm like, no, (laughs) no, off, off, no running. And you just see the, the look of horror in her face of wait a week of no training. I'm like a week off. She's like, but then I get back to intervals the next week. I'm like, no, the next week you get back to running, but short and easy. Mm -hmm. And she was just like, you could see the, the, all the gear, every gear in her brain churning, trying to figure Mm -hmm. out the argument against this. Mm Mm-hmm to her credit she did it and then she went to the race and set a pr yep because it was probably the first marathon she had ever raced rested fresh yep and came back to me said thank you so much i'm cured that's all i need from you went back to doing that plan that was way above her level Mm -hmm. and ended her career two months later um i can't remember what what specifically she was diagnosed with but she had basically damn it permanently damaged her thyroid mm. and that was that was it that's unfortunate that's a really unfortunate story and i
1: think that gets to the heart of it right here for for everyone is that model of the more is better but also there's a keeping up with the joneses mentality that we fall into which is when we have a period of time when we're not actively gaining we tend to think we're falling behind. Absolutely, right? Do you yep. agree with that, Rocco?
2: Absolutely. And I mean, I I struggle with it now. No. Yeah. I'll I'll. That's the other thing here. That's what I wanted to tell everyone is this isn't over. Mm. This is a lifelong battle, right? Just like alcoholism is. It's like I will always struggle with you telling me no. Right? <laughs> it's, it, it is what it is. I think I I am more receptive to that word Mm -hmm. now. I don't Mm -hmm. like that word anywhere in my life. I actually try not to use that word, but, (laughs) but I I mean, but I think with me, you're going to have to, um, case in point. So I think that, you know, those who are listening, it's these red flags are not screaming at you. You really have to stop and look at yourself literally in the mirror and go this month, Am I overtraining this month? Am mm. I, do I want this more than anyone else wants for me, right? The job of a good coach is to protect the athlete from themselves. Mm. But at the end of the day, it's our decision. So making that decision and knowing when to make that decision is is just as important as knowing there's a problem.
1: Agreed. Interesting. That's a great statement. The job of the coach is to protect the athlete from themselves. I would expand on that statement and say that is one end of the spectrum of the coach-athlete relationship. The other end of the coach-athlete relationship is for the coach. The job of the coach is to get out of the way of the athlete, to let them express their highest potential. And that's probably, it's a spectrum of where the athlete is in the relationship with the coach and the development of the athlete. What we want to do is Get you towards the other end of the spectrum so I can get less. I can be out of the way more and let you become the fastest Rocco possible, right? Win all the races, do all the things, be in balance, have
0: tagline, right relationship with sport, right? But that guidance is critical. Uh, I have a friend who keeps, I I self-coach myself or I'm self-coached. And I have a friend who keeps telling me, Trevor, heart surgeons don't do heart surgery on themselves. You need a coach. (laughs) And I have rarely, you know, at the end of every year, I look back and and analyze my season for what I can learn for the next year. Mm -hmm. And I have rarely had a season where I haven't looked at one stretch of my own training and go, if one of my athletes who I'm coaching did that, Hmm. I would be screaming at them. Interesting. Interesting. It's hard to see yourself doing these things. And I look back and my whole experience with overtraining and, and my solution was to go to the medical world that had no idea what overtraining was, couldn't help me, took me down a worse path. Having that guidance, having that person that can call you out when you need to be called out. Accountability. Recognize what's going on is invaluable. Mm-hmm.
1: That's the best role a coach can play, I think. Yep. Interesting. Well, guys, I want to thank you very much for your time today. Rocco, if you had to bottom line it for us, maybe you can give us, I'll say, three one-sentence takeaways that you would like the audience to to assimilate or digest from your experiences. What would you say that is? Uh, first and foremost,
2: uh, the biggest would be listen to your body. Um, that sounds so simple, mm-hmm. but... I'm really good at not listening to my body because I put weakness in there, right? And uh, if my legs are screaming at me, it's because I'm being a wimp, mm-hmm. right? It's not because I just did a f- six-and-a-half-hour day of the day before, and so maybe you shouldn't do another six-hour day today, mm-hmm. even though it's Sunday and it's 70 degrees out and gorgeous. Um, so two would be if athletes are – have coaches, then the second one would be really easy. Start listening to your coach. And don't lie mm. to your coach. Mm-hmm. Uh, how many of us turn our, our uh, power meter off for 20 minutes and then turn it back on? Oh, I was just taking a break, mm-hmm. you know, but I just added like 20 minutes, you know, balls to the wall, 2040s or something. Mm. Um, I haven't done that yet, so we <laughs> I've done that I'm, before. I'm already
1: <laughs> look, thinking about the gaps in some of those files I've seen. <laughs> Okay, um, I'm going to start putting a, uh, what, what's the thing that you put in the avalanche helmet, the red dot tracker, this would be a then good I can idea. see you, I can see you going yeah. back and forth on the road while your power meter's off.
2: Um, the <laughs> third, I think you mentioned it before. Um, it's, it's a really good question to ask yourself is why are you doing this? Right. I, 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 it's a beautiful sport, but. It can be a really reckless sport, Um, and it's sometimes hard to be good and not reckless. At least we think that way. Mm -hmm. Where I think you can be better, if I think you're losing out, if you're constantly worried about not doing too much, right? Mm -hmm. So I think it's you know a combo of why am I pushing myself this way? And if I want this result, then maybe I should do the right thing and. Listen to my body and listen to my coach and mm. listen to myself instead of blocking all that crap out and then going out and doing another ridiculous workout that right. you necessarily don't need. Because right. if the end result is to to win or to be the best that you possibly could be, not the best of the rest, but just the best you can be, guess what? It's going to take some discipline and it's going to take some fortitude mm-hmm. and you're going to have to bite your tongue a lot patience and as well. It's well right. there it is. It for me the reason I struggle, mm. delayed gratification. If I want mm. something I want it now, right? I don't want to wait. Uh, well, you need a budget board. No, 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 no. I'll I'll, I'll borrow against it or whatever. Mm-hmm. I, I mm-hmm. have to have it now. Mm. It's the same thing in sport. So if we can had have, have some patience, which is that word is hard for me to even come out of my mouth. Mm. Then uh, I think I think those three things right there would mm. actually
1: set somebody up for success whatever sport they're into. The expression is writing checks your ass can't cash, right? <laughs> that's it. <that's laughs> Great. Thank you very much guys. I really appreciate you taking time out of your day. I know everyone's busy. We got all the things to do, but don't do too much. It is with much gratitude that I recognize that you made it to the end of this episode of Cycling and Alignment. Hopefully you found Trevor and Rocco's insights useful and our discussion and dialogue around the concepts of overtraining and overreaching to be something you can have actionable takeaways from in your own cycling practice. As always, if you have comments or suggestions or you think that what I do needs improvement, I'm open to discussion, comments, criticisms, good, bad, or otherwise. Go to your computing device and enter in a new email address. That's info at cycling in